Well, good morning again. Progress. Progress is something that we are committed to in this world, right? We give our lives to progress. No matter what the issue is, hunger, malnutrition, oppression, disease, human trafficking, unfair practices, or injustice, we aim to oppose these. We, we vow to overcome it. We're, we're looking for progress. I mean, just think in our world of all the progress that we've made in a number of areas in the last 200 years. If you wanted to play some music 200 years ago, you would have to pay for an orchestra and rent a theater to listen to music. Or even 100 years ago, if you wanted to listen to your music, you need to purchase a very expensive phonograph to listen to your favorite music. But then we have records that came and then tapes and CDs. And now, now I can pull up my iPhone and I can listen to virtually any album I desire in a matter of seconds. Progress. Our incomes have increased, so now we can afford to have better housing, better schools, more courts, and more places throughout the world to make things safer. Travel has progressed. Now, this week, the Buzaks left, and they were home in West Africa, Togo, in less than 24 hours. That's progress. You know, 70 years ago, it would have taken them weeks by boat to get home. Most likely, they would have never come back. You know, most missionaries for years, you've heard us said, when they left to go to the mission field, they'd, they'd pack their belongings in a coffin because they thought, when I get there, I'm not coming back. But progress, now we can fly very easily. And travel is, is very easy and, and, and cheap, relatively. But we don't have to travel as much because we have the internet, right? We can easily open up our laptop or iPad or our iPhone at any point and visit anywhere in the world and see what it's like. Progress. You know, you don't have to leave your house to go see a movie. You know, as a kid, right, you had to actually go to the movie theater. Progress. We don't have to. At any point, you have access to thousands and thousands of movies from your couch. You don't have to leave your house to get groceries now. You can order them online and they'll be delivered to your house. You don't have to leave your house to do Black Friday Christmas shopping. You can actually do it with your computer at home. Progress. You don't even have to carry your Bible anymore because in your pocket you have the entire Bible. In fact, you could have 30, 40 translations. How many of you here, raise your hand, be honest, have an electronic Bible this morning? Boy, more in the second service than the first. That's like a good 40% of you. Progress. You know, communications have progressed. I can pull open my iPhone and, and turn on FaceTime, and my kids can talk to their grandparents in Indiana in a matter of moments and see them, and, and it's instant. You know, letters are replaced by phone calls, and phone calls are replaced by instant text messages. They talk to anyone in the world instantly via text message. You know, medicine has increased. We have more treatments for cancer and illness. We have x-rays and all these machines that diagnose what the issue is. We've seen so much amazing progress in the last hundred years. But there's one thing that eludes us. No matter how much we try to seize it, to conquer it, it stubbornly eludes our reach and we're immune, it's immune from our progress. And that's death. We all still die. You know, the best doctors on earth can't stop death. They can prolong it. They can delay death from coming, but it still comes. You know, advances in our world have come, but death is the end that we cannot escape. In Hollywood, Hollywood tries to fool us into thinking that science has somehow progressed, that they're, they're battling us. They send you off in this, this spaceship out to space for, for hundreds of years, and you'll just live on forever. It's not true. Death still comes. Death is the unwanted guest. What do you think about death? Do you think about death? What does this have to do with Jesus? How does Jesus change our understanding of death? This morning we're going to see death in this passage in John chapter 11. Turn with me 
to the fourth gospel. We've been walking through John's gospel this year and we, we've come to John chapter 11. And this book, this, this gospel, documents the three years of ministry of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're gonna walk through the entire chapter of John 11. And there's four scenes that I want you to see in this chapter, a pretty, very simple outline. Four scenes that we'll see, and I'll let you know as we walk through it. But before we do, I wanna pray and ask God for help. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can come together as the body of Christ and to worship you. We can worship in, in our song. We can worship in our giving. Worship in the reading of your word and the worship in the preaching of your word. And God, we ask that you would be honored and glorified. I ask for help this morning. God, that you would speak you would speak through me even as I stumble or I'm not clear that you would still be clear to your people. You give them understanding. I pray, God, I ask that they would come away changed this morning. Changed from spending time with your people, spending time before you and your word. I pray that you would receive all the glory for this. In Jesus' name, amen. First, the first scene here, verses one through 16, and John begins this chapter by, by mentioning Lazarus' death. Look at verse one. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with her ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, it said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. The story starts here of Lazarus, but it's just the launch pad of the story. And I don't want you to miss this. This is not the main point. Lazarus is not the main point of this story. This is most definitely not a story about Lazarus and, and his sickness. No, it's a story about Jesus' power over death. Lazarus just happened to be the person that had died. And the verse doesn't say there was a great and spiritual man that God couldn't afford to lose. No, it should rather read there was a man who was sick and it just happened to be Lazarus. It just happened to be someone that was close. But he's not the focus of the story. So what's happening? This, the two sisters send word to Jesus, and their note to him was simple, and it shows us the relationship that Jesus had with Lazarus and the sisters. It says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. It's a humble simplicity to it. There's, there's absolutely no mention of any symptoms that he had faced, just the plain facts. They don't ask Jesus to do anything. They, they could have pled with him. They could have asked. Rather, they just inform him that his friend whom he loves is sick. And so they entrust him to the Lord. And how does Jesus respond? Look at verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. He's saying the whole point of Lazarus and his death is for the glory of God. And, and notice, not only for the God's glory, but also for the Son to be glorified. So John also mentions in verse 5, very important verse. I want you to make note of this. He says in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why would he say that? What, what, what bearing does this information have on the story? Well, the answer is in verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. John mentions Jesus' love because verse six to the human ears seems like Jesus doesn't love him at all. If John had left out verse five and went directly to verse six, it would seem that Jesus lacked any love. But verse five affirms his love. Verse five affirms for us that Jesus loves us in the midst of our suffering. And I want you to do something this morning, whether you have a real Bible in front of you or an electronic one. I want you to, to mark this verse, verse five. I preached on this passage a year ago and I asked you to do the same thing then, so maybe it's already underlined. Good. If not, do it now. Underline it, circle it, highlight it, whatever, because you need verse five. You need verse five for your life because when trouble comes into your life, when pain and hurt and disappointment and trials and suffering appear at your door, you will need verse five. 
that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. And there might come a time today or tomorrow or next week when something happens and you will reflect, you'll go back to verse five. But maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, what, what kind of love is this? This is a strange kind of love. What kind of love waits two days longer before going to see a friend who's dying? And I wanna say this morning, God delaying doesn't mean he doesn't love. God is not restrained by time. Can you imagine God's love solely based upon time? Would you say, God, I have this need, if you don't answer in the next 30 minutes, I know you don't love me? That would be ridiculous. It would be an unhealthy way to look at God's love. Because verse five preaches to us that first, verse six isn't a delay in love at all. It's just a delay in time. God is not restricted by our clocks. God is not late. And no matter how much we want to in North America, we want to add to you know, the, the, the fruits of the Spirit in this regard. We want, we want love, joy, peace, patience, punctuality. All right, we, we really want it. We want everything on time. God is not restricted by time. That nagging thought maybe you have in the back of your mind, was Jesus late or was he right on time? And on the human level, it looks like he's late, but he's not. Sometimes even the divine looks late when we look at him from our human eyes and our limited perspective. But God doesn't function in our clocks. I mean, how weak would our God be if he functioned in our time? He wouldn't be God, he'd be human. And so this morning, I praise God that his actions are sovereign and not sentimental. He's a sovereign Lord. In verse seven, he continues, he wants to teach now. Verse seven, after he said this to the disciples, he says, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So at this point, the disciples are confused of the prospect of going back and we're fearful of what they would experience, what Jesus would experience. You know, they're, they're curious, why would you want to return back to the place that you just left? They were threatening to kill you. And on top of that, if you remember last week, as we ended chapter 10, in verse 42, they're experiencing a, a, a positive response to Jesus' ministry. Look at chapter 10, verse 42, and many believed in him there. So ministry's booming here, Jesus. Why do you want to go back where they threatened to kill you twice in a few moments? They wanted to stone you and then arrest you, and when you leave, why do you want to go back? They're fearful. And so Jesus teaches them in verse 9. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What is he saying here? Well, to the Hebrews, every day was arranged around a period of daylight and a period of night. We kind of have that here too, right? A clock. Jesus is saying, don't you realize a day cannot finish until it's over with? Real deep stuff. He's teaching them that their worry about safety won't add any time to the clock. It's already set in heaven. And what have you got to fear? God, God has control over this. Jesus said in chapter nine, verse four, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus often said throughout the gospel that his hour had not yet come. He's talking about his, his crucifixion, what was going to happen. And his, he knew his time had not yet come. He was working on God's timetable, not his own. There are those, I'm sure, here this morning, you're fearful of death. And a lot of that is, I'm sure, wrapped up in the fact that you don't know when that will be. But as Christians, we should take refuge in our God that he will not allow anything to happen that's outside of his control. As a Christian, 
You should not fear death because you're not going to die before God says your ministry is done. You know, J.C. Ryle has said, every man is immortal till his work is done. Take that to the bank. You're immortal until God says you're done. So Christ begins in some confidence here, even more so as teaching his disciples in verse 11. He's, he's a secure savior. He's very confident in the power to work. He talks about this in death. He uses the word sleep. It's used throughout scripture as, a, as an idea, a picture of death, especially concerning believers. And Jesus knew that Lazarus was dead, but he was confident. He was confident that he would raise him from the dead. But the disciples don't understand this. They, they didn't understand what he was saying. And so they say, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Je- Jesus, it might just, it's just gotta be a bad cold, maybe. He just needs rest. He needs some vitamin C. Why go back and have all the possibility of death or us? Just let him rest. But Jesus says plainly to them, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. He's telling them that he's glad that he wasn't there. He's glad that he wasn't there in the time because he wants them to believe. Believe what? You know, belief is a strange thing. Having faith is hard. And how do you grow in your faith? Is it always getting what you want when you want it? Is it, is it always understanding perfectly how everything's gonna work in the time that you desired for it to happen? You know, faith is a curious thing. Faith is hard, trust is hard. And the disciples, they needed to learn this. So in the midst of all that's going on, Jesus zeroes in. He's, he's training these men. He's seeing you need to have your faith expanded, grown in him. It's very important. Jesus, again, doesn't waste any opportunity. He has a plan. He knows what's going to happen. Because in a few weeks from this point, they would stand before the cross. And they would see their savior, their teacher, their leader. And he would hang before them in a bloody mess. He'd be nailed to a tree for them, scorned for their sins, beaten, bruised, dying. And they needed to grow in their trust because they would have to draw from the reservoir of faith that they understood who Jesus had and what he did and that Jesus had power over death. All this is happening. They wants to bring these guys to Bethany to see this so that their faith would grow. Jesus isn't simply wanting to teach the disciples about the power of God and Lazarus' life. He wants them to see that God has power over death. They will need to know this. They will need to know that he is the only man on planet Earth that could conquer death. Faith is a funny thing. As you move one step up, the step that you just left seems like unbelief. The disciples had some faith, but they needed more. And this miracle in Lazarus' life was going to be part of that process. Some of you too here need to grow in your faith. And God has brought circumstances into your life to grow, to trust him. And maybe you feel like you don't know what to do. You feel caught or stuck. Maybe you feel alone. I want to encourage you to take solace in the fact that if Jesus has power over death, he has power over whatever circumstance you're in right now. And and take notice that that God is looking for you to grow in your faith and your trust in him. That's why he placed you in that situation. You never arrive. You're always growing more and more in your faith, more and more in your trust in God. So verse 16 ends the the first scene here in this chapter. And Jesus now moves into Bethany and his disciples are following. And he's going to head to see Mary and Martha. And so that that leads into the second scene from verses 17 through 37. And we come to verse 17 and John writes, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Lazarus was already dead when the messenger had had reached Jesus and, and laid in the tomb at sunset. So Jesus and disciples reached the town of Bethany, but he does not enter. Instead, we read in verse 20. When when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So Martha comes and greets Jesus just outside near the gates, and, and, and she's the one that speaks first. 
and says, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she doesn't waste any time unburdening herself to her Lord. She knows Jesus, and she's seen a lot of his ministry, his miracles. And we, we know this from, verse, from this verse in verse 32, that this thought of Jesus making it to Lazarus before his death, that, that he would save him. And then Martha adds something unique to her belief there in Jesus. Look at verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha's faith is on display here. She's asking, I know that you have the power. I know that you can do something. And I wonder if the messenger who had brought the original message to Jesus and heard his response came back to give words to the sisters that so, so she would have heard Jesus' response in verse four, that this illness does not lead to death, but it's for the glory of God. So maybe she hears that, and it's in her mind. So she's asking. I'm sure she had seen the power of God through Jesus many times in his ministry. She's recalling those memories. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Jesus knows Martha's heart at the very moment. He's, he's wanting to open her eyes to see past the physical limitations of this world. He's seeking to grow her faith. He has the power to bring life, but he's not, he's not really showing his full hand at this point. And D.A. Carson calls this a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. He's, he's sharing, but not really sharing all the details. And so Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha here is a good student, okay? She listened well in class. She knows her Old Testament prophecy. She knew that it was what, what this was gonna happen. The resurrection of the body was taught throughout the Old Testament and further affirmed by the Pharisees and also taught in Jesus here in this chapter. So she knew, she had learned that God would raise him in the end. And she had faith that, that Jesus could raise her brother in the future, but she didn't think that Jesus could do it now. She had a general faith, something that we could understand and admire. She's timid. It's also unclear whether her, her head knowledge and it really impacted her life. Her response of I know shows that she has the intellectual ability to understand truth and to remember it and to recall it. But has it impacted her? So Jesus looks at Martha intently. I'm sure with compassion and care and with patience and reaching for a wrist as if he's about to say something to her that was completely going to rock her. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. Jesus is challenging her to believe in a person and not a system. You need this today. I need this today. Is your belief in a system of religion or is it in the person of Jesus Christ? You know, this is a monumental question throughout the gospel of John and a question that you have to answer. Who is Jesus? The world's still looking for the answer. They're curious. They don't understand. And the question isn't, who is Jesus to you? That doesn't matter. The question is, who is Jesus? And every single human has to answer this question. You cannot leave this world without answering this question. Who is Jesus? Jesus says here, he is the resurrection. He is the life. It's not your theology, it's not your thoughts, it's not your best work, it's not your procedures, it's not your church attendance. It's Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the life. And, and, and the order is very important. He is the resurrection and then the life because resurrection opens the gates to eternal life. So Martha's focused on that end. She, she knows her theology and the thought of her brother coming back is too far-fetched. She knows that in the future he will. But Jesus begins to dismantle that thought. There are many in our world that think they're looking for life and think they're going to find it. 
And if you're here this morning, you've been living and looking and striving to find life in any other place than Jesus, you've been wrong. You have been lied to. You have been deceived. You're lost. Real life is only found in Jesus Christ. It cannot be found in anything or anyone else. John 3, 15 and 16, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And John 5, 39 and 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And John 10, we looked at last week, 10 and 11, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Real life cannot be found outside of Jesus Christ. Any life outside of Jesus only brings eternal death. And in the promise that Jesus gives us, he says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And these two statements in verses 25 and 26 are not redundant, but they teach two separate connected truths. The one who believes in Jesus will live even if he physically dies. Because as Martha said earlier, God will raise him up in the last day. But as everyone who lives and believes in Jesus has eternal life, they will never die spiritually since eternal life cannot be removed by a physical death. Even physical death fails to quench the believer's real life. And that's why, as believers, we can confidently say, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Not because of us, because of Jesus. Through Jesus, we solve the problem of death. And then Jesus asked the same question here at the end of verse 26 to her. Do you believe this? Jesus was not asking Martha if she believed that he was about to raise her brother from the dead, but her Lord was calling her to personally believe that he alone was the source of resurrection power and eternal life. He doesn't say there is a resurrection and there is a life. He says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And Jesus is asking Martha personally, do you believe And listen, friend, this morning, Jesus is asking you, do you believe this? This, that Jesus is the life, that he is the source of the resurrection. He is the source of eternal life. Jesus isn't asking Martha if he believes he's about to raise her brother from the dead or on the future. He's asking if her faith can go beyond believing that her brother will be raised in the last day of resurrection to then a personal trust in Jesus as the resurrection, as the life. Do you want to cheat death? Trust in Jesus. He's the only way. Everyone seated here this morning has two choices in life. I've said this before, I'll continue to say it. You either trust in Christ for salvation or you trust in something else. There's not a third choice. You either trusting in Christ or you're trusting in anything else. And don't be fooled, it's not whether you believe in a future resurrection or not. Believing in the resurrection has no effect on if it's true or not. It's still true. There will be a resurrection whether you believe it or not. So the relevant question this morning for us in this passage remains the same as Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe in him? Do you believe Jesus? To believe means to, to, to grasp it, to embrace it, to trust it. To believe is to receive, to hold, and to enjoy. And with all that, belief comes joy and comfort and peace and hope. And poor Martha, when pressed on with this question from Jesus, she points back to the same answer she gave before. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. Martha saw indeed 
but through a glass darkly. She knew him, but only in part. She, she believed and she trusted Jesus, but her faith was mingled with much unbelief. And I don't know about you, but when I looked at this and studied this week, I see a lot of Martha and me. The Christian life isn't always clear and concise. It's rather a strange mixture of grace and weakness. And yet again, we're encouraged to not stay there, to not just be the same, but to grow, to read his word, to obey his word, to put into practice. And in verses 28 to 30, we see that after Martha finishes with Jesus, she goes back to find Mary. And the text says that she does this privately or secretly. I'm, I'm sure not to stir up the crowd. There's a crowd there of mourners. And when Mary hears that Jesus is calling for her, she, she rises quickly from the floor, probably at that point prostrate in, in grief over her brother. And the mourners, while they see what's going on, they follow with her. So she makes her way out to see Jesus and she falls to his feet and and she, she pleads with him. And the first thing she says is, if only, Jesus says, if, if, if only you had been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. She repeats the same phrase that, that Martha says earlier. If only you had been here. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. As we approach the, the climax of the story, we read that the Mary is pouring out her emotions in front of Jesus. And he asks, where is, where is the tomb? And they're on their way. And we come to verse 35. Just two simple words, and yet in those two simple words carry a world of significance. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five is the shortest verse in the Bible, but one of the most powerful and insightful verses. Here we find a remarkable glimpse into the glory of the Lord of the universe. At the beginning of the chapter, in verse 5, John wrote that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and her brother Lazarus. And later in verse 36, we see the response from the crowd. In response to, to the outpouring of Jesus, they, they say, see how he loved him. Jesus wept not because he lacked faith. He knew it would happen. He wept because he was full of love. And in love, he weeps with those who weep. Isaiah says of, of Jesus that he is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows, but not his own. Because his love is great, he made our pains his own. But Jesus' tears are not only from his love, he has a righteous anger at death and unbelief. John says that he is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Literally, it reads, he's outraged and unsettled. He is indignant. He's disturbed. And there's this passion of Jesus here. He's greatly troubled. He's shaken up. He's unsettled. He is standing face to face with death. And he knows what it will take to conquer this foe. This time he'll take Lazarus back from the jaws of death. Next time he'll lay down his own life. And so Jesus' weeping comes not from despair or resignation these are not tears of a man that feels powerless or un, unable to do anything or he's ready to give up. No, these, these are tears of mingled affection and anger leading to action. He will raise Lazarus. And I believe all above all this that Jesus weeps over sin. I believe he is weeping because of the sin-devastated world that he now lives and breathes in. He is weeping because he saw what this ugly, horrid thing of sin did to life. What, what sin had introduced to the human experience. Jesus weeps because the people will not weep over their sin. So Jesus weeps. 
through these tears, we can see that our God does not stand completely aloof to the pains of our lives. No, he's there. He's taken on our flesh and blood. He's, he's not called us to do anything that he's unwilling to do himself. We are not dropped into a world that he is unwilling to enter. We will suffer no pain that he was unwilling to endure himself. We will have no grief that he was unwilling to carry. Jesus wept. He did not think of himself to be above agonies, but he emptied himself of the deserved privilege by taking the form of a bondservant. You know, the heart of the Christian message is that a happy God so loved a weeping world that he gave his own son to weep with us, to live with us, to show us how to live, and then to die for us. And one day, one day we're promised that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's a promise. The one who wipes away every tear sheds his own. This ends the second scene here and moves into the third one in verses 38 through 44. And Jesus, now agitated of their lack of faith, asked for the stone to be rolled away from the cave. But still Martha has an issue. Martha, John writes, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. There's so many things to notice here, we can't mention them all. She's grieving at this point. You know, the thought for her of seeing and then smelling her brother's body in a state of de decomposition horrified her. At her, for her at this present moment, her brother's only a memory. I'm sure in this, in this moment, memories flooding her mind of growing up together with Lazarus. And the very thought of seeing her brother dead again was too much for her. For her, it was too late. She believes, as she said in verse 26, but her belief is muddied with a lot of unbelief. She believed, but when it came to putting her faith into action, she stumbles. And her response teaches us here this morning the raw truth that there, there lies in all of us a, a sense of unbelief in our hearts. Calvin writes, distracted in various ways, we fight with ourselves. And while we stretch out the one hand to ask for assistance from God, we repel with the other hand that very assistance as soon as it's offered to us. Mary, Mary, Martha, excuse me, cannot believe there is any use to remove the stone. And Jesus says in verse 40, he says to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus is saying to her right now, get your eyes off the dead body and look at me. And in this verse is the key verse to understand this entire chapter. In fact, I would say it's right in line with understanding the entire gospel of John. Jesus is wanting more than to raise Lazarus. He's about to show the glory of God and that comes from giving life. Some of you here this morning are Marthas. You're going through life only seeing problems. You worry and you fret and you look to find the answers to your problems. And when God gives you answers to the problem, all then you see is a solution and you rejoice in the solution until the next problem comes and you wait for the solution. And I'm not advocating that you forget your problems, but what I am saying is that your problems, no matter how huge or how life-dominating they are, are never bigger than God. And God wants you to look past the solution that he gives and see him. To recognize him, to see the glory of God working in your life. So every time that, the, that God brings an answer to, to your issues, we as believers should praise him. Recognize who he is and what he's done and not just the solution, but who he is. Don't miss God. Don't miss what he's done there. So they take away the stone. Everything's exposed now. I mean, picture the scene with me. 
the people now, the, the throng of people that have come with Mary, followed now to the tomb. What is Jesus gonna do next? And the stone is removed. The people pressing forward. Now even more curious than they were before. But the smell of death is, is wafting out of the tomb. Mary, probably unable to stand at this point, folded over in the ground, weeping in grief over her dead brother. Martha, standing in unbelief as to what Jesus is really going to do. The crowd, completely dumbfounded, but quiet as Jesus begins to pray. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. You know, the thought hit me, if, if Jesus wanted to raise Lazarus from the dead and, and just get it done, he could have did it at the house. He could have entered Bethany and say, let's go have some food and then on the way, Lazarus just comes walking and joins them. Right? He could have just done that. But he doesn't. He goes to great lengths for everyone to come to the tomb. He has bigger plans for them to see the power of God, the glory of God. And he has the people in mind. He prays to that end. He lets them know, I'm praying for you, by the way. You know, years ago, I was asked by a cousin of mine uh, to, to uh, be a part of her wedding and unbelievers in, in Oregon. And they said, can you just pray? Thinking that I would say, you know, bless this union, amen. And I didn't. I preached the gospel in my prayer. This is for you. You know, I, I, this is what it is. And Jesus is just honest. He was opening up right here. I'm doing this for you. The disciples and Mary and Martha and the crowd surround the tomb and they're waiting to see what happened. And before they see what happened, Jesus prays to the Father. And it's a beautiful prayer of simplicity and sincerity. And he prays as the one that God has sent. He prays as the mediator between God and man. He prays as the Son of God. And Jesus prays, get this, he prays as if the miracle already happened. A confidence that shows his power and control of the situation. And when he said these things, he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I'm sure louder than that. Why does he shout? The Greek word used here is megos. Greek means great, big, significant. It's a magnitude there. He shouts for Lazarus to come out. Well, there's a couple different reasons. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I believe it was loud to shock the people standing around. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral, but they're usually not loud and boisterous. Usually quiet and somber. Shocking them to see again the power right before them. Jesus shouting for Lazarus to come out is associated also with power of resurrection. One thing I found interesting that I read Augustine once remarked that if Jesus had not said Lazarus' name specifically, all would have come from the grave. The power of God. As we see that Christ has power over death, John writes, the man who had come out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his faith wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This man who... who Four days earlier, finished his life on earth and his flesh is now rotting, it's decaying, it's going back to, to dust from what it came. Now comes walking out of the tomb. It, it must have shocked the people looking on to see Lazarus walking out of the tomb. And at the sound of Christ's voice, death had to yield up its lawful captive and Christ stands there as a conqueror of death. And the sister, I'm sure, stood in amazement of what they just saw. Their hearts pounding. The brother whom they loved and who they pleaded for Jesus to come is now walking towards them. But Jesus said he would see the glory of God and they're seeing the glory of God. 
I mean, raising Lazarus from the dead is absolute proof that he says who he is and that he has power over death. And life is given back to Lazarus. And John writes, the man who had died came out and his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. He comes walking out. And then he commands them to the onlookers, unbind him, let him go. Death has no hold over this man any longer. And then John draws quickly the close of the scene. And it doesn't describe Lazarus' reunion with his sisters. He doesn't even describe the stunned reaction of the crowd. He doesn't give any of the, the clues what Lazarus did. I mean, what did he eat next? What would you want after being dead for four days? Good steak? Thank you. Doesn't say any of that. Why? Because he doesn't want the reader to get distracted from the main point. Is the main point Lazarus? Jesus said it multiple times, right? No. It wasn't about Lazarus. He says his illness does not lead to forever death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's all about God's glory. He wants to keep the main thing the main thing. So that ends the third scene. And we come to the final and fourth scene of the chapter through the end. And John writes in verse 45 and 46, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. They'd come to the tomb to mourn with Mary. And instead of mourning, they're, they're saved. They believe in Jesus. But then John writes, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The amazing wickedness of the human nature is illustrated in this verse. And, and, and I want you to, to get this for the church today. There's, there's no greater mistake for the church to, today to realize that experiencing and seeing miracles will then bring people to salvation. They have their chance. They stand before a tomb and watch a dead man walk out alive. And so we may look for flash in the church, thinking and we need to have the flash. We need to have the big things going so that people will be attracted and they'll come. This verse speaks against that. All of the, the light shows and dramatics will not draw people to Jesus Christ. He does that. We see that instead of being softened and convinced of who Jesus is, they're hardened and they're enraged and they go and report him. They continue in their unbelief. So verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the one and to one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What grim words those are. Now, earlier, the Jewish leaders might have questioned the authenticity of Jesus' miracles, but now they no longer doubt now they're only interested in keeping their positions. They want to remove Jesus. Jesus has become the threat they were worried about. And there's Caiaphas. He was a clear-eyed pragmatist. He knew that sometimes one has to put up with a lesser evil to prevent a larger evil. And here, he says, the death of one for the sake of the nation as a whole is necessary. Caiaphas was concerned for the nation, for the direction of it was going. He was concerned that the temple would be desecrated, destroyed, thinking that his only hope for the nation was, was for him to be killed. He was fearing the Romans instead of fearing God. His duty was to uphold justice and righteousness, even though he was a political leader. But instead, he fails miserably. He thought he was choosing the lesser of two evils. Just so you know, when you choose the lesser of two evils, you still choose evil. And I stand with Spurgeon. Of two evils, I choose neither. 
frankly, Caiaphas, the very steps he took to save the nation, destroy the nation. Those who are against God never win. So the chapter ends then in verse 54 and following. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they're looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. These are the final verses of John 11 and bring a conclusion to the first half of this gospel. It brings a conclusion to Jesus' public ministry. There has been so much progress in our world. But even with all of our progress, we haven't been able to eliminate death. But Jesus did. He defeated death. He has risen from the dead and he will raise us as Christians from the dead. It's only through Jesus, it's only through the gospel that we have life. At this time, I'm going to ask the elders and the men that are serving communion to come this morning. We have an opportunity to remember again what Christ did for us. As the men come forward right now, I, I want to read a passage from 1 Corinthians 11. And remember these words, as Paul writes, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I want to encourage you this morning as the elements are passed to take some time to examine yourself and confess your sins before God.